Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. Today we are incredibly lucky to have the legend that is Graham Obery with us. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Now, for many people listening, I'm sure Graham Obery will be a name that you know well, but for those who haven't heard of him, maybe you've been living under a rock for the last few years. Let's run through a few of his major achievements. Now, probably the most prominent ones are two-time world hour record holder and two-time individual pursuit world champion. Is that right? That is correct. But if you're speaking to regular folk, and it was been a while ago, 27 years ago, uh, famously known for the guy that built a bike out using parts of a washing machine, um, ski tuck position, um, banned by UCI, um, Superman position, that, that kind of thing, build my own bikes. Uh, innovating and building my own bikes and changing things, getting banned. That's as well as those championships, that all, that kind of rings a bell. That's right, yeah. I was going to move on to, to sort of say that really what you are, of course, known for is being an innovator. And I suppose, like you say, you know, you've often butted heads with the sort of powers that be in cycling throughout your career. And obviously, we're here with Endura at the moment, and you're their disruptor in chief. Is that correct? Well, that's my title. I, I think I naturally disrupt, and I, I don't know about chiefing, but certainly disruptive. I'm certainly at school and, and uh, carried out on into mainstream life, but um, certainly, certainly, I need to question how things are. You know, there's a whole period in cycling that stayed the same from the 1900s, basically, 
um, kind of road bikes, and then the maze bends, that's your road bars, and then that diamond-shaped bike and steel tube and then spoke wheels, and everyone stayed the same till about the mid-80s. And uh, Moser came along, and then that whole decade, just that between that decade of Moser, uh, Mexico City with the disc wheels, he was the first to use the disc wheels for a proper thing, and then um, Lycra, um, aerodynamics, aerotubing, um, carbon, the couch position, bikes build out apart of washing machine, and you know, in the USA, didn't the, the, the continental Europeans didn't really, it, it's not part of the culture for the time trial which was the very much a British culture because road racing was banned for so long that it became the culture to meet secretly in laybys and do, ride against the clock. It's a very, very British phenomenon. So they didn't see me and Chris Borman at, at head-to-head events, you know, or at the time trial and scenes. It didn't mean anything to them. So they saw this guy from Scotland with a bike built at a part wash machine in this ski-top position. They'd never seen it because they didn't see the time trial scene. And then um, next thing, I'm, I'm attacking Francesca Moses' hour record, this sacred thing of the hour record. Of course, you did it as an amateur as well, didn't you? You didn't really have, you know, Chris Boardman had a lot of support, but you didn't really have any support. And I suppose that's partly why I suppose you built your own bikes out of parts from your washing machine, because you really had to do it all yourself, didn't you? Well, at that point, um, I can now say that there's been, maybe not in English levels, but in Scottish levels, a whole thing, and actually in television about, a lady went mission, missing for 19 years and, and the murderers were, were convicted. And that that was my sponsor, right? And, and and I was naive because, oh, yeah, I'll sponsor you, the guy that owned a hotel that didn't own a hotel. And so that, at the end of 92, I was like, the guy was strangling me, right? Saying, you're a dead man, you've turned your back in hospitality. And, and at that point, the plan was to attack Ekimov's world hour amateur record at 48.5 kilometres. And... I, after getting strangled and, and, and everything and the whole thing, and he kind of left for me with my money gone. And, and, and it was, never mind that, at the end of 1992, rolling into 1993, I was thinking, you know what, I'm never riding again because this has brought me to this situation and I should have invested in actually getting a proper job. So, but then, you know, it was unfinished business. There's this flame that doesn't quite go out, right? People understand that. There's this drive, right, to achieve what you can. You know, we're having that talent. I knew I could do so much more. And I could do so, so it, it was eating me, and I got. I was so angry, and, and you know, and, and I goes, I just turned around and said, right, I'm, I'm breaking Moser's all-time world record, which to explain it in real terms to people was fifty-one point one five one kilometers. Yeah, so now, no mean feat, really. You know, Moser obviously he didn't just do the hour record. He was one of the top professionals in the world of cycling, right? So this wasn't just any record, Moser was one of the greats. Well, he was, and, you know, and he took the record from Merckx in 1972, which was old style with the wool and jerseys and everything, and a silk jersey actually had made for aerodynamics, and uh, Mexico City for thin air, but nonetheless, drop handlebars, classic, uh, and from 49 and a half kilometres, more or less, to 51.151, the iconic number, which stood for nine years, and then this was seen as, oh my goodness, from the British record holder at the time that I was of 46 and a half kilometres to 51.151. People were thinking Graham seriously lost it, going for that professional world all-time hour record. And it was almost sacrilege to do it. So um, that that was a starting point. But I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm doing this. And absolutely will make myself good enough because I was not good enough at the time. And I knew that. I have to make, I have to, go a new level. That was the 1st of January 1993. And I have explained it to people as 
you know, your listeners probably, quite a few of the listeners probably have a standard kind of training circuit and you kind of know what gear you're going to be in and, you know, each time and there's different hills and sections, you know what kind of what gear for for your good form. So I'd be using that same maybe two or three different circuits and you exactly what gear you've got to be in for each climb and that kind of thing, right? But 2nd of January, suddenly that's not acceptable. I've got to be a, a tooth or two teeth higher, bigger gear than what was previously acceptable. And it goes, that's not good enough. I have to make myself so much better. And, and you know, so it was just not accepting acceptable anymore. And then, you know what, this this is crunch time. And, and when, but even when you went for it, you know, you famously had a go at it on the first day and you came up a bit short and you talked about this and that, you, you know, you, you felt that you didn't, you know, you hadn't quite, you didn't want it enough perhaps on that first day, but, but failing really gave you the kind of fire in your belly to come at it the next day with full commitment. It was. It almost needed that theory to realise I hadn't reached enough into myself. You think you are. Like, I compare it to Chariots of Fire. You know, that you know that absolute effort, right? At a human level of sport and effort, squeezing everything out. But that wasn't enough. So for me, what it took was me realising that, hold on, I need to be more like Neil Armstrong, stepped on a rocket that could explode. Um, for his passion and belief, what he wanted to do, he'll risk his life for it. And I'm thinking, this is, you have to proactively reach that level, right? It's like ripping your own kidney out. Um, but but a lot of ways you're inhibited in an effort thinking, because your body's subconsciously going, you have to stop, ding, 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 like a nuclear power station. All these alarms going off, ding, 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 you have to stop, right? Because you, you, something will explode, your heart will explode or you'll die or, you know, when your body's screaming, don't, don't stop, right? But you've personally thinking level want to carry on. And, and that's with sport and absolute reaching out yourself that I did the day before. But at this point, I'm going, there's going to be three outcomes. There's going to be either... A, a pass out, blackout, or B, um, a die of some sort of heart failure or something, or C, a break with our record. There wasn't any of this, you know, we saw in the recent era, people just walking away, or I gave it a good go, but I didn't get it. There was going to be none of that this time because I was so angry, and your back's against the wall. Um, uh, you know, and just so the, the, the feel of, you know, because this is my life quest, this. Francesca Moza and Eddie Merckx were both my heroes as a time trialist. As the ultimate time trial, right? So it wasn't, I mean, <clears throat> not disrespecting the road, but that wasn't my passion. It was how fast can I as an individual ride against the clock? Risking everything. You know, like when you think of it, you step up for the hour record. In my case, I stepped up for the world hour record um, with my own bike that I built, famously with a part of wash machine. And my own riding style, which is the crouch position, and my own training technique, which is was a wee, a little bit at the time, um, it it wasn't recognised. It needed to do specific training for specific results. So I was working on: is this going to actually reach and stretch me as an athlete, or I'm recovering from that effort? It was bang specific results. Like if you're a javelin thrower, you just train for javelin. But cycling at that time is based on kind of all get the miles in. Even although people go for specific things, there was still an element of you have to kind of do the all-round thing and mileage and, you know, and, and general kind of training and, and, and kind of do some specialised training. But just doing specialised training seemed extraordinary. 
So I stepped up, up with these three things that seemed outlandish. So, and there's no tactics in their record. It's like, it's like jumping across the Grand Canyon, right? It's like, you fall short, that's really bad. It's like, you step up with nothing. Ultimate gambler, right? You, you, it's like walking up, you've put, you've put everything on black in the casino, right? In the roulette table. And he goes, well, you know, my house, my kidney, um, my savings, everything on black to break their record. And if you fall short, that's it. There's no excuse, no tactics, nothing, that's it. End of. Um, and that's kind of how it came about. Yeah, there's no second place in the hour record, is there, really? Well, well, no, and it's like, well, I kind of abjectly succeeded because it's such a huge thing for the for the British uh, listener. It's it, it, it's if, unless you're embedded in the cultural cycling, right? You don't really understand the power of the hour record, the importance of the hour record. The best, the quickest way to explain it is the world hour record. You, even you yourself said twice world a record holder, right? You didn't mention that in both of those occasions I broke a world ten kilometer, world twenty kilometer, and a record, right? So that's three world records. You didn't say broke six world records. There's a record. There are other ones. World records can be dismissed in the shadow of the record, such as its immensity. It's the you know when I broke that Moses Hour record, it was that was the headline news back in the day. It was te- terrestrial television and mainstream evening television. First thing up before the economy or or any of the global events was Hour record broken. I mean, how many sporting very very few sporting um, events of importance reach the very first headline news, and that was the Hour record. Certainly in that time in Italy, France and a lot of the world, but not in the UK. That's, and then it's the, just suddenly you're catapulted into this world of, wow, the world's going wow. When I came from, from breaking that record in Norway, there was three film crews on the doorstep. Like one from Italy, one from France and one from Belgium. No BBC or anything like that, right? They'd actually flown over because we have to actually get him on his doorstep. So this to, to express the immensity of it, and you know all these messages in the phone, and go, ah, oh, we'll pay you piles of money to come out to Belgium, and you know, and then and then the following heels of that it was I was this weird guy that ridden this weird way and everything. Our record, and then when the World Championship happened in Hamar, um, yeah, that same venue in Norway, then that was the point. People go right, we need to get you, you know. Suddenly I was on this circuit. Um, almost like the entertainment, kind of starting to realise, Holder, this is the entertainment circuit. You've done the hard deal of being a world champion, world record holder, and now it's like you need to go and ride around these tracks and, and six-day events at 11 o'clock at night, and there's people with beer and stuff, and then you're riding around and you're doing this entertainment circuit, around the, the whole six-day circuit, which was, was, was suddenly banging in that circuit, suddenly which was a really an interesting thing. And it's very different now, I suppose, isn't it? Because when Bradley Wiggins broke the hour record, of course, there was much more media surrounding it because obviously since Team Sky and you know, now Team Ineos and Bradley Wiggins winning the Tour de France and that thing has come in, you know, obviously Bradley Wiggins' hour record was televised. They sold tickets to it and things like that. But that obviously, you know, cycling just wasn't a big sport in the UK back then. So, you know, like you say, so foreign media turned up, but I wonder if you expected the BBC to turn up. Well, they, they didn't turn up on my doorstep when I got home. So there wasn't a huge homecoming thing 
on the British level. Although people actually was voted Scottish, Scottish Sports Personality of the Year that on the basis that nobody could tell tell me, you know, I voted for you, right? But they couldn't tell me what it was that I won, right? They kind of, that was the thing, there's riders on different sides of the track, you kind of go around and then it's that event and then there's this thing this that the Europeans think is this amazing record thing, right? So I think, oh, that's amazing when that Scottish guy's going done that whole European thing and they're all up. I think it's amazing, right? So I'm voting for him, right? But they couldn't really, the average public couldn't really comprehend it. We, we didn't have that level of interest. I mean, the success of British cycling has really catapulted people's understanding of cycling and tactics and what it is and everything and to a more level of physically what it is. But at that day, it was like, wow, there's a cyclist actually done this foreign thing, the very less European sport. And you know, and it was like, wow, that's amazing. But they couldn't tell you what it was. And you know, and I think, you know, if if you had been born, you know, a little bit later, perhaps, and you know, maybe the same era as Bradley Wiggins, you know, it would be, it would have been interesting to see, you know, how would you, you know, as a bit of a maverick, have fitted in with something like Team Sky? Do you think you would have done? Would oh my have, goodness, would you have wanted been, to? No, it'd have been absolutely dreadful for all parties, because one, um, <laughs> as a maverick. And there was no money back in the day, seriously, to explain how little money there was in 1995 when they won the World Championship, the last one in Colombia. And that season and the run-up to it, well, the first thing is it had been banned in 1994 from that position, famously, the crouch position. And then went away a wee bit depressed, but, well, a big bit, and then, oh, here, what will I do now? And then I'm thinking, well, hold on, I'm still an athlete. And then um, they said, if you use the clip-on bars, they'll be happy. So I thought, right, okay, look, see, I've never pushed the boundaries in my entire life. All I've ever done is actually analyse what the boundaries are and goes, okay, the same as Formula One or any other, you know, the main sports that actually employ people to find out how close can we get to this boundary? What can we do to be the absolute advantage within the boundary? So I did that with these tri-bars. I thought, what's the absolute limit of possibility? And, and obviously... I ended up going, well, let's stick my hands right out in front of me. Um, and it seemed ridiculous to me. Even I thought, well, I've got to try it because it's a limit of possibility. And it turned out I loved it. I absolutely loved it right away. It was like, one was like a Spitfire pilot, right? Going to look over these hands a bit. It was so, you know what it was? If you visualise looking at the bone structure of a skeleton, a human being from sideways in a Superman position with their arms stretched out in front of them, if you take it, there's an elbow pad. So the hands are gripping a grip right in front of you. The elbows are in an elbow pad. So that's locked. So what you're talking about is almost like a bridge, an arch, which forms with the, the, the bone of the arm down the spine and into the hip bone. So what you've got is an arch. And because the hands are gripping the grip, there's no forward and backward motion. So when you're pedaling onto the pedals, there's no sliding back and forth. You're locked in place, and it was such a powerful position. You could really get behind the pedals. And my saddle was... Suddenly I moved my saddle from like three and four centimetres ahead of the bracket. I had to move back to five behind because of in the last days of of the um, of the crouch position, right, for legality. But then I took it voluntarily back to like nine and ten behind the bracket. So... So I'm really getting behind it with this locked position. So in a lot of ways, I'm actually pedaling from behind what they call top dead centre, where the pedals are up vertical. That was a really powerful part of my stroke, and it still is. Actually, like kicking a football 
at that point and rolling into it because it's this locked position. And I absolutely loved it. So let's, you know, let's, so just so, so people... Sorry, <laughs> I, I went off at a tangent. No, it's okay. And, but the original thing was how little money there was. Yes. Um, during that year with the Superman position, Duke Daly, the national coach, said, and, and Manchester Velodrome had only just opened. So he said, listen, would you like to ride the World Cup in Australia and Japan? I said, oh, I would love to, Duke. That's amazing. He goes, well, listen, listen, you need to pump your own tyres up, right? Um, if you're okay with that, then that's fine. We'll organise a ticket, right? This so like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, right? The golden ticket, right? On my own, bike bag, out to Australia, right? Um, on my own, bike bag. And our other teams are like, well, where's everybody else? And we're like, I am the British team. And we're talking about somebody who was the entire British team at one point, right? Um, and, you know, and just, but I just, I liked that. There was no money, just free flow and hang out with the Irish guys and uh, the, the Kiwis and, you know, and, and the Australians to get onto your original question about um, how did he go on this guy? The, 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 the starting point of me realising how good it was having no money, that that was almost the entirety of the budget to send me to Japan and Australia, right? The last thing dude said was try and win something if you can, right? Which I did, I won silver and a, a gold in the pursuit thing. So, And this was pre-Olympic years. I don't know if that got me some salvage of funding to help to the Olympics or something. I don't know. But um, but but the, 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 the Australians were certainly not out socialising with us between events, out, oh, well, you've done our event, let's go out to Tokyo or something. Then, because they had to be in bed for half ten or something, this this academy, and I thought, oh, this is really sinister. Like, riders been told not to go out to a club or something, you've got to go to bed. Really, that's like extraordinary things. Oh, yeah, this is like the army or something. It's like, so I'm thinking, oh, hold on a minute. And also, Doug just gave me free reign. I mean, I tried all different things, gear size and chain rings and all weird things, right? And all Duke would ever say was, I'm not saying it's wrong. It might not be appropriate for this event, <laughs> right? There's as much criticism and he would give me free reign um, because he understood that sooner or later something good could come with it. And he stuck his neck out. Duke daily stuck his neck out for me because I'll tell you why. April of that year, I came out with Superman, first showing. Superman position, Rob Hales lapped me on Hern Hill. And you know how big Hern Hill is? On the 10-minute pursuit. Doug turned around 10 minutes later and says, will you ride the World Cup, represent Great Britain in the World Cup in Athens for the pursuit? You know what? And that rolled on to that year, going to Japan, going to Australia, and then on to Colombia, and it was world champion. So he stuck his neck out. That would never happen now, because if I turned up with that form in April... I wouldn't. I would be told to go home, come back, and you've got a condition to be good enough to be in the British team, and I would, would never have been world champion. Right. Let's talk about the bikes. I think you know everyone's going to want to hear them. So first of all, I suppose you know the most famous bike is is Old Faithful. Is that is that actually the name? Or is it that is the name. You know, Old Faithful. It's the, my friend had a bike called Old Faithful. Okay. So let's let's um, run. So let's run through the bike. So you made it yourself, and it has you know very un, quite unusually for the time. It had aerofoil tubing. Yes. And it had, you you ran it with two specialised tri-spoke wheels. Yes. And you you basically built it so that you could use the crouch position. And that's where you... Well, well, actually, no. I built this so that, see, to explain it properly, the year before this, 
um, or, or just just before I get engaged in the murdering sponsor, that what I I decide I realised the what the the big best thing I ever realised my entire life in terms of sport and development was that what I already know is inhibiting me to know more and with an absolute clear view. I got back on a bike, my actual time trial bike with upturn handlebars, and I thought, right, I'm getting on this bike as if I'd never ridden any bike in my entire life, and I'm going to judge this. And it was literally from the end of the road to realise these pedals are too wide apart. The entire bike was built to save 40 or 50 millimetres of a, what they now call Q-factor. There's no such thing as Q-factor. So Nobody it, talked about that. So it had that. a very narrow bottom bracket. Yeah, totally, yeah. 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 Uh, so the biggest innovation in that bike, you don't even see it. The biggest innovation was, and the reason I had to use washing machine bearings and washing machine housing because I needed a 50 by 25 millimetre inner bore uh, bearings. These huge 50 millimetre bearings... Um, pretty close together and the innovation was um, you couldn't just shorten a standard bottom bracket use bottom bracket bearings it was going to turn into a, a ball joint right which the Italians did copied it um, and I was just smiling thinking sooner that later they'll ask me how I did mine right but th- these bearings were mounted onto the, the, the very the nub and the inside of the cranks so these were machined down by hand I didn't know what to say filed, right? Um, they were machined by hand, uh, and these bearings mounted on to the, 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 the inner nub so that literally the bearings is as wide as it possibly can be um, and, and still have a crank sustained onto it. And, and the way the dust cap to dust cap width was six to eight millimetres. That's that obviously, you know, that's that's really impressive, and, and, that, and that allowed you to move your legs, and I suppose, in a much more natural stance. It did, and the reason that it looks like that is, be, you know, with the cross set, the whole cross look, is because there's no, because it's so narrow, there's no room for the bar for your knees, and there's no room for chain stays, so the chain stays had to be elevated, because the chain is literally just almost missing your tyre, it is missing the tyre, apart from a starting effort and a pursuit, um, but but that's a different story. But the, there was so little room, and it ended that cross shape purely to get that narrow bracket in. And it also had uh, a kind of straight up, a really tall stem, and it had some very narrow handlebars on which you had kind of, I suppose, like mountain but mountain bike grips on the side, sort of, and it allowed you to crouch down and basically essentially bring your chest to, to the handlebars so that you could get your head and your body extremely low and obviously make a very aerodynamic position. And then we know it's very aerodynamic because Enduro have tested it in the wind yes, tunnel. Yes, there is a, an excellent piece they did on, a, on, on linked from the, their own website. Um, going in the wind tunnel, testing the aerodynamic properties, which is a wee bit disappointing for me because I wanted to do this amazing, super amazing athlete on that position. But what you don't mention is the energy it takes, some muscular energy for your for your arms, and it's it's there's energy getting used on that to to hold the position, especially on the track as well. So that was the that was the deal with that. But it was very aero. But eventually, the UCI obviously banned it. So you had to then innovate again, didn't you? And, and I think you've spoke, you know, most people I think may have sort of thrown their toys out of the pram and thought, well, you know, if they're just going to ban me, well, forget it, I'll walk away. But actually you've talked about this as being a good thing. Yeah, it is a good thing in hindsight. 
which have actually borrowed to, to other aspects of life, do corporate talks or whatever, that actually, you know what, you don't know that adversity might be a gift to you. Although you can never see what the benefit's going to be at the time, right? But it, it seemed awful. I'm, I'm personally getting, you know what, um, you know what, victimised or whatever, right? But it wasn't. If, you know, if you had done the same thing back in the day and, and had done the same results, you'd have got treated the same. It wasn't a personal thing. And you can see, like, for, as I mentioned earlier, from 1984 to 1994, that 10 years, more happened than the previous 100 years. So you're thinking they pressed the big red panic button. And the reason they, re they pressed the big red panic button was because Francesca Moser, my hero, uh, you know, when I was talking about, I went after the World Championships, ah, oh, you must come here, and I went to Italy. And, and Francesco Moser and Ercol Berlini, both our record holders and both um, ex-World Road Race champions, uh, were live in, on TV with me, right? They walked up with Francesco and Ercol Berlini, and, oh, yeah, and I was live, in, live on Italian TV. So all the only word of Italian knew at that point was Piacere, which means, how do you do? And then I kind of gesticulated, you know, oh, I'm live on TV, or kind of, Francesco's kind of the same height as me. goes, oh, you're the same height, but my hand's gesticulating and pointed my bike, like, ride my bike. So, and he, but he did. He rolled up his trouser legs and literally ride, rode, all faithful round the track, and the 12,000 people that were there went wild, literally wild. Francesco said, I'm building one of those. Because... See, it was nine years after his record, and he's kept himself in good shape in all those years. So he was in his early 40s, or just turned 40 or something like that. Um, so he wanted to celebrate his 10 year of holding the record. So he built that bike with a sponge to support his chest, 90 degrees seat angle. And he he'd protégés riding about and, and prototypes of this as well. But none of them are going very fast, right? Because I can't understand why we're not going faster. So Francesco met up with me in Milan, and he said, oh, Graham, we must go training together. The Milan show in 1994, I think it was early in, in January, or maybe in November, no, it must have been October, November. And he said, oh, come training, we'll go and ride the track. You know what, and that's a highlight of my career. The guy who copied my bike, rode in the same position, there's a photograph somewhere of me and Francesco riding together on the track in Milan. You know what? And there's that unspoken respect of us both going full bore, like taking turns at the front, right? And this guy was my hero, like for what he did for the innovation and, and pushing the limits. And then actually the record, the ultimate time trial, and I'm riding with him and he's copied my bike and I'm riding with him. Isn't that the most incredible thing? And there was an unspoken respect. And then he wrote the foreword for my biography, autobiography. So that's that, you know, and, and this is important for your general listeners, right? You'll never, I mean, there's not enough room in the world for everybody to achieve what I achieved, right? So people ride and they're passionate about it. But a lot of people come up to, to me and they say, listen, oh, just, oh, I don't feel I've achieved. I feel that, you know, I've not achieved what I should have done in my life and I'm maybe late 40s or something. And, you know, and they want to do more. And, and they're thinking, and I say to them, here's the thing. You know what matters to me? Respect my peer group. Francesco Moza was my peer group because he's built the same bike and he can judge me. So 
I say, have you got respect for your peer group? Whether it's your clubmates or whatever. Not because of how fast you go, because your attitude, your grit, or anything else, right? He goes, well, yes, well, that's all that actually matters to me at the end of the day, is that. But that was the highlight of it. But he got me banned. <laughs> but, you know, Francesco Mosa and all his protégés <laughs> and the 90 degrees heat angle, that pressed the red button. So he got you banned, and yeah. so then you developed what's known as the Superman position. You've already mentioned it, but we'll, we'll just explain it. It's, you know, it's similar to a kind of normal triathlon position where you rest your elbows on two pads and you hold on to sort of you know, ski pole extensions on, on the end, you know, kind of strut out in front. But the key difference with yours, obviously, is that it was very, very stretched out. It was very stretched out and very high. It was basically like Superman flying through the air. That's how you get called Superman because I was speaking to a reporter Right, because I should have called it low position, right? Been self-promoting uh, or something, right? But I was trying to describe this as you're trying to describe it. And I said, it's kind of like Superman flying through the air, my arms right in front of me. And he goes, all right, so it's a Superman position. And that's it stuck from that moment. And then I come out and get lapped by Rob Hales. As I explained, and then the whole thing went on. But you used that position to break the hour record again. Yeah, no, I, d- I didn't. Um, in April 1994, here's the timeline. I broke the record on July the 17th, 1993. It was an extraordinarily long time ago. And then, then Chris Boardman broke the record from me uh, in Bordeaux and uh, six days later. And he did it on a kind of standard low-profile triathlon bike with a very low position, the standard triathlon bike. It was, bars, the aero but... carbon and all that yeah. whole thing, right? So, and thankfully, because right, I know what it felt like the day before to not break the world era, because it's the most awful thing. So, much as people think, oh, that was dreadful, you don't... See, here's what people don't get. Once you've broken the era record, held the world era record, for one minute even, then you are record man. I would get letters through the post... They wouldn't say world champion nothing. It would say, and actually came to me, right? It'd say record man, short land, T land, short land, right? And they would get through my letterbox, right? And it was that was what they're interested in. You're the record man. It doesn't matter. I've lost the record. I'm a record man. So it doesn't matter. That's that point you're in history. And did you have a special bike for the Superman position or did you do that on Old Faithful? You could do it on a normal bike, really, yeah, couldn't yeah, you? Yeah, sorry. Because the Superman position went yeah. onto Old Faithful. Yes. Yeah, it did, because he didn't ban the bike no, at that stage. Just, they banned, just banned the position. Yeah, so it was a position. So I could I could put those bars, and it took me an afternoon to build this big, long stem thing. Uh, and, and I yourself. was determined with the Superman position. Um, I'm sorry, where Francesco comes in, and Ches- Francesco went to Mexico City in February of 1994 and did more than I did but fell short of what Chris Bowman did. So he, if Chris hadn't stepped up, he would have held the world air record with that. And, and I believe to this day it's the fastest veterans ever, ever. So um, fair dues to him. Still pretty good. Um, but the, 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 the actual, the, the Superman position, um, that was an old faithful, onto old faithful. And I was very determined that I wouldn't hide this you see, it wasn't going to be some coup de tête and then I get to the worlds and then, oh, look, I'm doing this and it's legal. I wanted from the f- day one to come out f- uh, in April of 1995 um, and 
and, and actually people see this. Um, and obviously I was so just downbeat thinking, oh, well, I don't know if I'm even riding anything. Obviously I hadn't trained properly. And I but I wanted people to see this and I wanted people to see it at World Cups. So that, you know what, it took me an afternoon to do it, right? And so if nobody else wanted to ride like that and they got beaten, then, well, oh, you've seen me riding that all season. There's a New Zealander guy called Lee um, Vertongen. He broke the world, um, well, he broke the Southern Hemisphere record outdoors in this position. He loved it, goes, that's amazing, I'm doing that, right? Free thinkers, just one man, man, free thinkers. And the Italians and the Spanish. Um, in the Olympics 1996, you'll see the, the, the Italian team pursuit and the team pursuit, both gold medal winners, adopted this position. But the team pursuit looks absolutely amazing with arms out front. You know, and the ironic thing is, I went to the Olympics and I, and I came away. I would been in really ill, um, and and I got eleventh place, right? Which I'm okay with because there's nothing more I could do. I thought I'll start fast and to hold it and hold it and hold it, and just physically wasn't able. I was half a stone underweight, um, but it was the Olympics, and I thought, you know what? It's a complete waste of time. I'm really, really disappointed with the Olympic result and just downbeat I spoke honestly about it in my book just really depressing and thinking that's it because I knew it was kind of the end of the line that was that very short compressed career um, I was like oh kind of perform the monkey a wee bit and then um, but anyway they did that there was six gold medals one like that that was my influence and then Chris Bowman ironically did the Superman position better than I did and he still holds the kind of, you know, the longest hour record, doesn't it, he? It does. You know, even Victor Campanart's hour record that was recently set in, in Mexico, he hasn't gone further than Chris Boardman did oh, no, that's using right. the then, Superman position. So that's, so, that's, that's you know what, you know, Ironically, Chris did it. He did do it better than me because I don't really work out the arm position and never, I don't know about the shape of my arms morphologically. Um, I've got really like albatross arms, right? Um, like you were riding with me today, and you can see I've, I've built, I've got this. Well, I built ages ago a steel six five three six silver soldered bike, which is super long top tube, um, because of my length of my arms. And, and it also has special handlebars, doesn't it? Yeah, handlebars that you kind of coat. Well, it's kind of like city bars, They're except kind of cow, cow horn handlebars. It, and and what you've done is you've put the Shimano STI shifters kind of in the middle, sort of jutting out, so you can kind of rest your arms on the cow horn bars and grip the shifters in a sort of pseudo time trial position. And yeah, pseudo, or, or if you want to ride like a road rider, because I'd never use the drops, right? Most people, you rarely see anybody in the drops because most people generally kind of go in the drops if they must, but I find most people don't really like the drops very much. They'd rather sit in the hoods or, or sit further around the top of the handlebars. That's more comfortable. So what I did was, why have the drops when you can have more handlebar, more city bar, and and then you've still got the drop. That you're you know you're sitting on top of the hoods, um, and, and it allows. And I tell you what, it's a great descending position as you found today, flying past you straight down them mountains. It just crouched right down onto the sitting in the top tube with these bars that you can grip properly, grip sideways. So um, it's kind of a sportive type bike. Yeah, and we see, you know, the funny thing is, I think we see a lot of professionals doing a similar kind of position in the pro peloton today. You know, they kind of rest their 
they rest their arms on the on the on the handlebars on the tops and handlebars and try and grip onto the side of the hoods. But of course, they're you know they're not allowed to use handlebars like that because of UCI. But they're trying to essentially do the same thing you do because you get a really flat back, you elongate your torso, and it's really fast. Marcel Kittel was also here with Enduro, and he's the former 14-time Tour de France yeah, winning yeah, sprinter. sprinter, obviously a very incredible athlete, and he was uh, yeah, also here absolutely. too with Enduro. Um, so we was riding out for a bit, and then. And so there's a downhill bit, and I would oh, let's, let's go for it, right? And because he's right in for it, roll straight down that mountain, and it's like 85 kilos, right? He's oh, bloody hell, straight down there. But um, game for for, go, for doing that, and he was doing that in road bars, right? Crouching really down, like you know, that you know, like you know, it was um, about four or five years ago. This came on, so he's right here, he was riding a canyon air road. And he sees a sort of disc brake, standard disc brake, aero road bike, you know, all the modern, all the modern uh -huh. things, aero carbon handlebars, aero carbon frame and things like that. And you're there on your, obviously, you know, your handmade steel bike. And really, you're just as fast, aren't you? But, but well, yeah, I mean, that bike, the frame itself was, I got it down to six, uh, 1350 grams, 6.5 to your last set, 6.5 in the country, by the way. Um, cut down lugs. And a buffed in bottom bracket. See when you feel the weight of of all the bits of the ends, the brake bridges and everything, it's a hell of a weight. Just in steel. And I thought to get my grinder and, and files and everything out and take a pile of weight out of that, cut them short. But by that point, then you've got to really super clean it, make sure everything's absolutely perfect fitting. It's like it's not an in, it's not engineering, it's craft. And absolutely super clean silver solder. And I got it down to thirteen fifty for the frame and it's a long frame and it's a long rear end as well for chain line because you know because see these tucked up rear wheels what people don't realize when when your chain's going off at an angle and a really steep angle to the top or bottom gears it's a, it's it's a measured fact that you lose three percent of your power more than you normally would from a straight chain right that's yeah. a that's a giveaway a hell of a giveaway of power and of course the more power you're putting out the more in absolute terms you're losing well, absolutely. If you, if my bike and me weighs eighty kilos, it's the same as putting two and a half kilos on. If I'm losing three percent, and so I do need to say, we were riding out. We're actually in Portavari in the west coast of Scotland right now. It's like it must be some sort of interstorm period, um, and it's been glorious. And but it's it's Endura's road launch for the road clothing range, you know, and uh, Vito. See, I got it right that time. Max Vito was over here. Yeah, uh, it's over here. And, uh, and it was a it was a privilege to ride out. And... Yeah, so we've been here, obviously, Enduro launching their new Pro SL Bibshaw, and we've been riding an Enduro Pro SL kit, and obviously it's all been very, very nice. As you say, we've been very lucky to have some very nice weather, so the kit hasn't been tested to the absolute extremes, but, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of bad weather to come in the UK before the summertime. Well, so, I'm sure that I will have the opportunity to, and living in Ayrshire, I have plenty of opportunity for some more precipitation and wind to, to get out there and, and give it its full full test. Yeah, out. and that's what you're doing with Endura, isn't it? You're helping them to develop their product because obviously as someone who's, you know, not afraid to break conventions, you know, you have a lot to offer them as a company, don't you? Well, if there's something that goes, a hold on, this could be improved in some way, which is difficult, then it goes, okay, what's the thought in this? It could be my own morphology or... Or whatever, and then, but you know, I like test it out, and they're thinking, what? Just even for confirmation, they go, "This is splendid," or, or some small thing of where it sits in your shoulder or anything. They go, "You're just honest," because um, I'm always innovating everything. 
I mean, my friends didn't leave their bike at the moment. I'm not leaving my bike at games. It'll come back. There'll be some hole drilling it or something. And it's like, so, um, so just, just ride. Do you know what? There's no way of really can do all the lab thing and everything else, but the only way of really knowing a product is just ride and ride and ride. And you know what? I've turned into this tourist kind of guy. Because I, I never really lined up for any events. I know I'm doing an event in Oban um, on the 9th and 10th of, of May, um, which feel free to enter. And how can people enter that if they would like just to? Just look at like, like, Oban Sportive. Oh, oh, so I, and I'm also sportive. talking that so night. If, you, if they Google that, the Open Sportive. Yeah, yeah I'm talking doing... that night about okay. well-being and mental wellness and stuff like that, right? Because, you know, people struggle these days. So many and what's the date again? It's the 9th and 10th of May. So Open Sportive, um, 9th and 10th of May. Yes, and we'll be riding that, that bike. And, and you know what? It's one of those, like, well, you can, because I don't know if I, I think I'll hold on. I'm going to go and write a novel now or something, but I'm tempted. So there might be the last sport of a rider, who knows what. But, um, but I'll be there and... and uh, that's yeah, that, that you'll be able to see this bike we've spoken so highly of. So, um, okay, well, we're running out of time very sadly. So, let me ask you one more question before we wrap up. And I think you know, you sort of touched on it a little bit, and you've spoken a lot about not kind of resting all of your kind of self-worth on achievement and and actually that having aspirations is better so you know maybe maybe talk very quickly about that just before the end and your kind yes, of attitude on life. I did talk about this, you know. What, Upgraded my training manual called the Aubrey Way. They said, oh, can you put two more chapters in? And I thought, oh, I've done everything. But that was good for them to force me because I thought, okay, let's get into more, the, the, the fundamental, even deeper into the, you know, a lot of times like your psychology is like peeling layers of an onion. Getting nearer into the middle of onion, what's your fundamental motive of doing something in the first place? What's the fundamental drive and actually want out of it? So, see, for me, I like to live in the moment. I'm very much looking at like squirrels and the squirrel gets its, you know, guarded up its nuts for the minute. So it does plan for the future, but it generally lives in the moment, right? Very simplistically. So I like to go, right? I ride for that absolute, for the joy of what riding is, this in this moment, right? And and I like a good workout and I like a good breathing on and a punt on, just in my own, like, so there's nobody's doing in my way or comparative or gouging me out or I've got to wait on for them as well. So I'm just out riding around beautiful hills of Ayrshire. But I do it in the moment. And the reason that I don't uh, set myself, I will achieve something because achievement, the, the reward for that achievement is, is later. Whereas you can aspire to something in this moment. It's, it's that the actual aspiration is right now. And that's the actual immediate reward is aspiring. If you don't do the achievement, you're still enjoying aspiring. So it's in the moment. But for me, I don't really aspire to anything in our cycling terms because then I'm thinking, oh, I really be so fit for something I'm aspiring to. So my mind is in the future. I like to think about I'm just riding purely the zen of it right now for what it is. It's riding this. You know, I'm the most immature person. And I think, you know what, I'm a, I'm a, because I think most cyclists are just big kids, right? Oh, I want to ride about my bike. And I just want to go back to being a kid. They ride out of my bike. I like a good workout. I like the feel of it. I love the countryside. I'm, I'm blessed to live in Ayrshire where there's these beautiful roads um, with this tiny thread of roads and hills that you can ride around. I, and I just go and do that in the moment. And that's that's why I ride my bike because I just, I've, I've never lost a passion. Never lost the passion for it. 
Graham Obi, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bye.